Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calagiris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. And today, we are joined by a longtime friend of Pragmatic, Mike Smart. Mike Smart is founder and principal consultant of Egress Solutions, a boutique product consultancy. He has truly in his DNA, product strategy, product management. He's an intensely focused problem solver, 20 plus years experience, uh, leading companies both internally and in the consultant role, working with companies like Aptis, Adobe, Bain Capital, FireEye, NetApp, VMware. So some big names that we all know. Uh, and he's also an avid hiker and he has kite flyer as something he's avid about. And I'm just fascinated by that. And I heard you, you fly a lot of kites. Are there certain kinds of kites? So this is one of those things, you know, you, you kind of get pulled into things by people that are outside your work realm. So my son um, has young grandchildren. So I'm a grandfather. Um, and there was a kite flying adventure that we did. I hadn't done this. And I went out and did it with them one afternoon. And I mean, it was the biggest gas. I mean, I had, I was having more fun than they were. And when we left, I bought two kites and I said, I'm doing this again. And so occasionally we have the, I'm blessed living in a Bay area. You got great winds and great places, open fields. If I get in a funk or in a mood, I go out and fly a kite. And it's just, I mean, I, I hate to sound like a, you know, an ad or a, a trailer for Mary Poppins, but it's real. <laughs> <laughs> it is a real good gas and a good feeling um, you, I can't help but smile while I do it, and I, I, there aren't many things I do that, to do that, so it's, it's a great thing. Yeah, I'm not a trickster. There are people out there I see can, you know, run five kites at once and have wars. I just like to – I have a racing kite. I let it out. The wind goes, and I literally could stay there for – I do for hours just watching this thing go. That's awesome. Do your grandkids still like to go with you? Or yes. Do you oh, yes. Yeah. Well, younger one, yes. Older one, no. <laughs> maybe they'll come back yeah. <laughs> all right well that's not, i mean i have to just hearing you talk about it it sounds like fun and you do have wind all the time there so i'm gonna have yeah. to check it out Absolutely. Uh, so i know mike one of the things that you guys work with uh with your companies and your clients on really is win loss and it's something we here at pragmatic are really passionate about and you've been really working on it. One of the boxes, right? One of the boxes, one of the main boxes. You know, yes. it's in that coveted upper left corner area. Uh, and I know that one of the things you've been working on is sort of what is WinLoss 2.0? What is the next iteration of this that makes it even more powerful? So talk to me a little bit about, first of all, why are you and your team so passionate about WinLoss? You know, it's funny. Um, we came to this by way of clients. We were, as you know, long history with Pragmatic. We were providing implementation support for years, and in one client scenario, as we wrapped up some of our work, they said, can you help us with this? And the first, and it became repeated, the first few times, three or four times, we referred them to various people that do win-loss. One of the clients came back and said we weren't particularly satisfied with the outcome. Not that they didn't do anything, that they did something wrong, we just had a different idea. And through that interaction, we started working around some ideas of how to shift win-loss from what it has historically, and I'm surprised, but people are still doing it this way, which is largely the reporting of anecdotal stories about individual transactions that happen in the sales process. And I think given the 
the history of win-loss and the history of our industry. Those made sense when we had heavy emphasis sales, high-touch sales activity going on, all of the like, where sales was the primary, almost the singular spear into an account transaction and you accumulate enough of those transactions. So the anecdotes, the stories were important to have. We could pivot off of them. We could rotate off of them. My first experience with loss was 20 years ago when I was a regional sales manager at a computer hardware company. And I've done dip-ins with people doing traditional practice and they're still out there and they're still doing it. And I get, and I know there's a value for it. Our point was we didn't think that was enough. And so we took, an, with the help of this client, we took an approach where we started looking at ways to expand the quantitative angle on this. We live in a subscription society. We have lots of data out there and people are just more interested in understanding. Tell me what, I want to hear the story, but I want the data as well. And so that's how we started on this, this journey of, of really taking an approach, calling it 2.0. We actually call the service Buyer's Insight. And what it principally is, is a view of collecting through survey information as large a quantity of inputs from buyers as we possibly can through a set of formed, well-informed questions about the process that they went through to make the decision. Less about sales engagement, more about how they approached and looked at evaluating the problem vis-a-vis -vis competitors, um, balancing the value price equation. That's a lot of that. <clears throat> and then something we started doing last year was we started because, again, through discovery, that every company has, all of us in, in the business, all, all vendors have what I call, and I was having this conversation with some of the other, we all have our truths about our product, what we believe to be true, what our assumptions are. I'll call them hypotheses. And in many instances, these hypotheses are based on facts, and sometimes they're based on partial facts, and sometimes they're just things we want to believe. And so we formulated this approach, calling it sticking with the idea of 2.0, to test these hypotheses because these are the things that will drive the behavior of the organization as it approaches the marketplace, it talks to customer messages. Um, so we've pushed this into a place where we've got a balance of quantitative information collected through surveys, followed up by deep dive interviews. We put the two together, provide a synthesis and a way to feedback to customers, very specific reporting anal analytics some strong cohort analysis, and some detailed recommendations and action plan. And the emphasis, again, is a shift away from the selling process to more the buyer mindset. It's trying to give a broad view of what the buyer considers and what the buyer considers to be options for them as they make these decisions. So and I think that, again, it's got such great synergy with, with what we talk about and teach because really it's flipping the conversation from how did you interact with our things and our steps and our processes to what truly was your process? Because I think we often inflate the influence of both our sales and our marketing, right, in their process. It's just one small piece of the problem they were trying to solve, the value they saw. And so really trying to make sure that the questions and the discovery is from the buyer's point of view is going to give, I would think, a much more holistic and uh, wide view of the process they went through. And, and it is the only view that really matters at yep. the end of the day, right? <laughs> yeah. 
as much as we think we are the center of the attention with our product, with our offering, because it's so hard to put these products together and it's so hard to move them into the stream of commerce. And when we're successful at it, it we feel like it is about us. But in reality, I think you're right about the shifting of the point of view um, in order to get to understanding how to sustain, how to grow, and how to really exceed the needs or answer the high calling of the customer base, we've got to shift out of our own thinking. And so this is a way that, do, that does that. Um, anecdotally, no pun intended, <laughs> uh, we, we had a situation where a, a CEO called us in and he said, we are considering changing our pricing, going to reduce our price by as much as 7 to 10%. And we need, my gut tells me this is probably not the right move, but I'm getting a lot of heat and a lot of noise. And I need you to verify. And so we went out and we did this verification. And what we discovered was, one, there's a set of customers that absolutely believe that the price on the product was a bargain. Uh, we heard one person say, I could have cost justified this transaction or this solution for twice the price. We heard others say that the price was at least competitive with everybody else out there. There was one particular customer segment, which was unbeknownst to the, to the vendor, that had, a, had looked at the pricing method and pricing model as punitive, and principally because they couldn't cover the base assumptions about the number of users that were, that, that were required. So they would step in to use this tool, and when they did the analysis on price per user, it was skyrocketing right? Because they, they just couldn't spread the cost across a large enough base. And so the comeback for the recommendation, do not, please do not <laughs> reduce your price. However, look at this segment and let's talk about how you would come up with a different pricing structure for this, this particular segment. And only the segment because no one else in your customer base has this problem. Um, so th that's the kind of thing that we, we want to help bring in is, is I'll call it data that the hard data that starts to give our clients, the companies, a way to reflect on and, and start the analysis process that says, okay, what is the answer here? It's not just slash price. It's, it's more complicated than that. But also, before you make that action, think about the fact that if you took 7% off the top line, you drop 7% reduction in profit to the bottom line. So, so those are the kind of things we're finding we're able to help people do is get an understanding of how – how they can change the game without without affecting the, the financial uh, benefit or, or even a customer benefit to the for the product and marketplace. Well, and I would think the the wider numbers that you use for the survey really do allow you to do segmentation in a way that's very hard to do if you're just doing the qualitative interviews because the number of interviews are somewhat limiting to that. That is that is the beauty of thinking this way. And by the way, we. we I don't want this to sound like a 30-minute pitch for this service. It's not. It really is a pitch for the practice because we set this up and we do this as an offering for our consulting company, but others can do this as well. In fact, when we go into engagement, we offer to do the knowledge transfer. We want to see people do this work. It's not that hard. It takes some rigor, it takes some structure, and it takes some resource, dedicated resources but it can be done. We're talking about using a survey platform. We're talking about formulating questionnaires about your business slash product and your customer and then accumulating this information in a way that allows you to analyze it and collect it and make sense out of it, probably more graphically as you think about passing it up to senior leadership than, 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 than 
you know, uh, text or, or a written word, and then going out and validating, and this is reversed to some of the principles we have at Pragmatic Marketing, where you go interview and then validate. We do this survey work first because it gives us a framing of what the problem is segmented across the board. Again, to get away from this anecdotal orientation. And then we add the anecdotal interviews to provide color, commentary, and depth so we can actually probe on the things that people responded to in the questionnaire. And so it gives us a way to put full context around it. So you wouldn't know, for instance, that somebody thought the price of something was just fine, and they wouldn't give you the information I could have justified the price at 2x unless you go talk to them, right? Um, so those are the kinds of things that we want to try and share and bring back in this process. And, and again, I, I, I advocate, I think it's best done when people do this inside their organizations with the resources they have. Yes, I think we would both totally agree that more people doing win-loss is only going, only going to be a good thing. And I do think, you know, whether you lead with the quantitative or the qualitative, both has its advantages, right? Because sometimes what, to your point, the qualitative gives you is the reason behind what makes the data seem weird. Right. When you see the, the, you know what I mean? You're like, well, that's sort of odd. And let me figure out the story. And then you can understand why that particular cohort is ask, acting that way or what that's is right. the main cause. And then you can address that that's right. uh, versus assume. <laughs> assume and, and, a, and, and there's a, there are other things we, we found. We did a project earlier this spring. I guess it finished up May where we identified a set of personas that the client had not visualized or seen. Um, it was because we had, to your point, we had data sort of looking strange. Why are, why are these group of people behaving this way? And by the way, it crosses segmentation that they have. So it's not just the size of the segment or the size of the client. These, these behaviors are showing up. And through the interviews, we started picking out common threads and common themes that were showing up. I said, this is a different persona than the ones that we have seen in this kind. We've done two projects for them previously. This is a different persona, and we need to start paying attention to them because marketing to them, we live in a world of personalization, right? So marketing to these personas, if we understand who they are, gives us a, a potential advantage over our competitors who may be doing the mass push basic messaging. And so we, we started teasing out for them, and we didn't do all the persona work. We just suggested we're seeing some interesting things here. Data said this. We confirmed that with the interviews, but we're seeing a different type of personality or, per, or archetype show up in your buying process. They want different things. They care about different things. They want to be talked to differently, and you may want to take advantage of that since you're in a fairly competitive marketplace. Well, that would be, that, I mean, that's powerful information that any of us would love to have. Absolutely, yes. And I think one of the other things that you've, you've touched upon a, a few times that is also hugely powerful information is the pricing feedback and the value in pricing. And that, that can be difficult information to suss out to some degree because it's, you know, what did you think of our price? <laughs> um, and the person's going to say, I think it's too high because I see my <laughs> renewal coming up. Right. right. You know, you really, <laughs> and this is, and we have taken a, we've taken an approach and we've tried it that way, the way you talked about it. And uh, that doesn't work. And we've realized that we can get people to talk about price as long as we talk about it in relationship to value. And people are very comfortable giving you sort of this view of the balance effect. Um, I could justify this purchase at twice the price. Um, I can give this product 
X amount of cost to it, but if I didn't have it, it would take two headcount to do the work that it does. Th those are the kind of conversations that people, that buyers will readily engage in um, because they're comfortable and it doesn't have this cloud over their head that does this mean that there's a price increase coming. Um, you can also have the direct pricing discussion and we do some work in that area as well, but it takes a very different tack and it takes a very different set of questions and the setup for this has to be, the, the work is in the setup so that you, you don't end up with biased, built-in or embedded bias in the answers. Totally different idea, totally different set of disciplines required, but it can be done, but it's not, it's not how you approach this through a, a win-loss vehicle or our buyer's insight vehicle. Now, one other thing I think of many things that is powerful about this approach to win-loss is the sort of the um, ammunition it gives you as you present this up to a larger audience. I think one of the difficult things about a traditional, more only qualitative win-loss report is if um, they're easy for non-believers to dismiss, right? There's not enough meat for someone if they're, if they're not prone, if they don't understand the power of them, they kind of push it under the, the rug either by saying, you know, that's not enough numbers or it's just an anecdote or that's, you know, um, it was led by something else. And so when if I can combine that context, which brings to life the numbers as well, I would think particularly with the executive audience that can really help with buy-in. I, I, I'm nodding with, with a smile on my face and, and, and a total agreement because when you can go back to a skeptic and they're all over the company and some for very good reasons and say, and they ask the question, well, how many people did you talk to? And say, well, our confidence level is 85% or it's 90%. It solves that problem, right? That immediately takes that off the table. Um, and sometimes we get too high. What I like to say is high end and high end for us. We like to see, we'd like to get over 200 respondents, but a lot of times companies don't have the, even the, the transaction pool for that. They're not dealing with the large enough base of raw, raw customers or perspectives or prospective customers to give us that. So we can even get to some reasonable confidence levels with 70 interviews, 80 interviews. Um, and we start to share what that means. We have some, some beliefs and some things we share with people that talk about why you need an in and what's a, what's an, what's a, what's good enough in. So in mm. a, what's a good enough confidence level. And, and my simple thing is because we all took statistics in college and we all think, okay, in has to be a thousand or more. That's what we learned in school. <laughs> and the confidence level has to be 95%. And I say not for building software products. Okay. If we were putting a new drug in the marketplace or we're putting something out there that's strict product liability, we can satisfy and live off of business decisions with much smaller ends than that. And so the, the numbers we like to push for between 80 and eight and 95%, we rarely get an, a confidence factor of 95%, and we rarely get one below 85%. And we think this, a good enough tolerance and a good enough rigor to say to someone, this is 75 survey respondents in 20 interviews. And the combination of the two should get you, give you enough confidence that the data is actually real. And so you move the conversation away from, to your point, well, you know, that's only one person's opinion. Nope, there's a, there's a pattern. There's, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a set of things that people are, this cohort is behaving the same way. They're all doing similar things. 
Um, or if they're not, we have reasons through the interviews to understand why they're doing things differently. It, it does raise the bar. And, and in our age where we are with our technology and with just the whole, our whole industry and the, certainly the, the job classification of product management, data is king, right? Everybody wants data and analytics for everything. So this is a way to step up and start doing that. How often do you recommend, I know you, you said you like to arm your clients to be able to do and then do these efforts internally. How often do you see, do you see win-loss as a continual piece or, you know, you should do it every six months or, you know, once you do it once, you never have to do it again. I know it's not so that there's, bad, but. No. <laughs> and, and, but here's, so here's the, you know, so the consultant me says the ideal time is to do it four times a year. And, and that would be great, but there's a resource constraint because everybody mm -hmm. has another job. And so what we've learned and this is all learning. You, know, you start this stuff, and we and people say, "Do you really think we can do this four times a year?" And you start watching them and helping you. No, you can't do this four times a year. You're <laughs> right. <laughs> but doing it twice a year, every six to eight months, I think is a great way to build a longer-term view. The first flash of data that comes in is going to create um, seismic effect inside your company, um, and we've seen it. We have skeptics show up and test the data and they try and poke at it and they we hand them all the files. When they do the work with us, we give them all the files, the questionnaires, the raw data, tape recorded interviews and go through it and tear it apart. We may, if we have made some errors in, 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 in math, we'll clean those up. We really work hard not to do that. But the efficacy of the work is solid. So when we set these things up, by the way, we do this in conjunction with the client. So both sides of us are feeling pretty good about the, the research, strength of the research. If we do that repeatedly every six to eight months, the, the dial starts to change. The conversation starts to change. Sales gets armed with data they can actually start using to affect the sales cycle and affect the outcome. Um, the marketing part, which I think the anecdotal pieces have never really helped them, now starts to get data that can start to convert into messaging. And if we refresh that, I think that's an ideal scenario. And I'd say twice in a year is probably plenty. Well, and you, I think you make a good point. We all think it has to be locked by a calendar year. And if you can't do it every six months, but you could do it every eight, that's, that's okay too. It's better than not doing it at all. I mean, right. the, the ROI on win-loss is so overwhelming, right? There's been studies by Gartner and all kinds of people that have stepped into this thing that say it contributes somewhere between seven to eight percent to profitability. Wow. Some of these things are, are, you know, urban legend kind of data, and some of them are more grounded. But in in our in our subscription, our our, our cloud world, I think it's absolutely the, the overwhelming notion of this is if you can do win loss and you can improve, I'll take something basic like your renewal rates by 15%, just by tapping into your existing customers and, and do nothing more than intervene where you may have customers that may be considering another option. And that drives an increase in your renewal rate of 15 to 20%. Well, that's money on the bottom line. The math flows through and it says it makes sense. Um, so I think it's the lift of getting started is the big part of it, but once getting it into a rhythm, and I've seen companies do this, one of the companies you rattled off, and I'll do a shout out for them, Aptis is one of the best win-loss practices I've ever seen. It's done in-house. It's all in-house, and it is two people, probably half time on it, and one person rotating in and out, and they just have it down to a science, and they actually do it every quarter. Impressive. It is. 
Yeah. Um, so I know it can be done, and I've seen it done, and they do it well. Um, that was the insight of one person there, the CRO, said this is what we're going to do. No, no flinching, no excuses. We're going to do this once, once a quarter. Maybe. They got it down to a system, and, a, and it was, and it's analytic, and it's got good data, and sales is cooperating, and sales ops is participating, and marketing drives it. Product marketing actually drives it. So we talked about lots of different stuff, right? And and I think you know the making it a priority in the company matters. What else? What would you tell our listeners if they could do two things differently? or start doing them tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would you have them do? So if you're in a SaaS subscription model, I would say implement some type of practice around this because it's going to have a significant impact on churn. And everybody in your company is concerned about churn and retention these days. It's the, it's the recurring revenue reality that we live in. Um, and I would say start out by looking at some of the assumptions or hypotheses you have about your business. If you're a product marketing person, product manager, this is your job. What kind of assumptions do we think? Do we think we can command a price premium? Let's go test that. Does the market actually see us capable of commanding a price premium? Do we believe that we can rely on our speed of release? Does the market actually, our customers and buyers actually buy into that? Do we actually do that to their satisfaction? Test those hypotheses. And I and I mean a more structured survey than sort of drop it out. It's a, it's a highly structured mechanism. And then look at the data, see the results. And if the hypothesis pass, that's fantastic. Usually we find we will go into a situation and test four to five hypotheses. Some pass, some can't be re accepted or, 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 or rejected. They're sort of remain neutral and some of them fail. And sometimes the ones that fail are the ones that the company holds most dear. These are our truths and our market is telling us yeah, we're not buying it. So now you've got to pivot. You've got to come up with something different you're going to rely on. Um, that's the first thing to do. And, and, and so if you can test the hypothesis or the truths that you rely on to do business, um, that's huge. Um, I think focusing on churn is another huge one. So I gave two in sort of the same sentence there. No, I think those are great. Anything else you want to make sure that our listeners leave with today? No, I think this has been a great conversation. Um, thank you, your 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 great uh, interviewer, um, and I it probably it comes across. I have passion for this, like I do with most things related to product and product management. Um, I, I honestly believe this this directional piece is something that more companies should take advantage of internally and and provide some practice for doing it. Your passion and your knowledge clearly come through, Mike. It was a genuine pleasure to have you on today. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Enjoyed it. Excellent. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 